Jesus. After I said I wasn't going to do any more intros, welcome back to another episode of The Least Favorite. I'm your girl, Natalie, and this is my first solo episode of this podcast. I mean, is it really considered solo, though, if you're behind the camera? Yes. It's like solo because I'm like the main host now, correct? Um, I don't like that. Whatever. Before we even get into the topic of the bowl, I want to do a quick little catch up. I feel like... We have been doing a lot and there has been some major burnout. I'm sure you can tell. Kenny actually hit me up. Shout out to Kenny. And he was like, I can tell that you're burnt out. Like, I feel it. And maybe you guys should go in a different direction. I was going to quit altogether. Um, but I feel like I always want to quit this podcast and that's nothing new. But I feel like I had some revelations and I'm just like, no, like we've come too far to quit. And Considering our journey from 2020 up until now, look at all of the amazing opportunities we've gotten and that we've been able to like provide for other people. There is no way that we can stop now because then stopping that is like closing the door on all the future opportunities. So I'm not we were not stopping. We're going to keep going, but I am going to shift the way the conversations look, the types of guests we have. um, And hopefully it just continues to get better. And yeah. We've been really focused on the pop-up shops. We're trying to expand that part of this journey and like get bigger venues, get more people to come out. So that's like where a lot of the focus and energy is going to go. But I'm excited for that. Are you excited? Very excited. Pop-ups have been fun, been a lot of success, um, meeting a lot of amazing people who sell dope products. And hopefully we can just continue to grow, get more people to come out. You know, and just continue to cultivate. Oh, God. <laughs> but, like, let's talk <laughs> about the, community. the challenges. Like, it's really hard to make people want to come out to a pop-up shop event and get them to, like, spend money and be there and, like, really enjoy their time and tell their friends. Like, it is challenging. And I don't think you and I realized how much of, like, low-key party promoters you have to be for events like this. And I am not... As social as we are, I feel like we're better social people when we're in more like intimate settings with people what do you I, think i'm i'm not a salesman i don't like being a salesman that too like you gotta so, come out it's like that's not I my like that even at my job that i work in retail i guess you can say i don't sell people stuff mm-hmm. i just like when i sell hearing aids i let them know the benefits of it and why it's recommended for them mm-hmm. i don't say you need this or you need to buy this because xyz mm-hmm. i just give them all the information and you do with that what you will. Yeah. I'm not a salesman. So, you know, to your point, it's like I'm not trying to sell anyone a dream of this crazy <laughs> pop-up. Pop-ups are fun. Like It's, it's, it's fun. When you're there, it's a vibe. Like, the music it's is dope. good. The vendors are dope. The energy is good. Everybody is very welcoming and warm. We try to make the pop-up the new brunch. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's the new brunch. You can come. You can drink. You can smoke your hookah. You don't got to pay for some overpriced nasty food. Yeah, you're getting food from vendors who are cooking shit from their homes. I mean, not yeah. everybody likes to eat from everybody, but the food is good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, but it's something that I just feel like with more collaboration, I think we can get to where we want to be. It's just going to take time. And that's something that I have an issue with, the time that it takes to do successful things. And I literally posted a reel about it and I, <laughs> I deleted it because I was like, I looked a mess. But the overall message is like, if you want to be great, Greatness takes time. There's no way that you're going to be great in a week or a month or even a year. Like if you want to be mediocre, yeah, but not if you want to be great. But yeah, whatever. But anyway, let's get into the topic of the bowl. The topic of the bowl. The topic. What is it called? Word in a bowl. It's really a topic. Question. Oh, God. Let's see what Tony got for us here. When was the last time you lied? <laughs> I cannot say. I will get fired. <laughs> <laughs> the last time I lied? Recent. Um, recently. Today. We all tell a little lie. I feel like we asked this already, though. Probably. This was a, no, let's ask another one. We definitely asked that. Who doesn't lie? Oh, wait. Hold on. I can answer this. I have a question for you. So I was on a podcast. It's called Shout Out to the Short Ends of the Stick podcast. I was a guest on their pod and they talked about lying and like, 
you know, if you knew that what you were going to tell this person was going to completely ruin the relationship completely, would you still tell them? And I was like, honestly, do you really want to deal with that? Because it's like, even if you tell them and they respect the fact, people always say, I respect the fact that you told me the truth. But there's still those people who will hold it over your head every single day and make you pay for it. For example, if you cheat on your girl and you tell her I cheated on you, she might forgive you. She might take you back. But then you might have to hear her bring that up constantly every fucking day in the relationship. And it's like, one, why did I even tell you? But two, I told you, you forgave me and now you're still bringing it up. So it's like, shut the fuck up. What's the point of telling your significant other that you cheat on them? Because you don't want, I don't know, you don't want the guilt, I guess. Fuck guilt. (laughs) <laughs> what's the point? Like, what's there's no benefit of that. There's no do you benefit. Want, do you want to remain in this relationship? Don't say nothing. Do you want this? You were caught. I don't listen. I don't believe in snitching, so don't snitch on yourself. <laughs> what are you? What are you telling for? Yeah, I don't know. It's just like there's certain things that are better taken to the grave, honestly, because you're telling them for what? Like for what? So I just so that's why I thought of that because I'm like, if you knew it was really gonna jeopardize it, is it really worth it to tell? At that point, if you want to feel get over it, try to have conversations with her to try to get into like maybe threesomes and open relationship yes, with her. Man, you took it to no. Whole... I'm just I'm, I'm just saying because <laughs> where's the benefit of telling her that you had, that you cheated on? There her is no benefit. Him? That's no the thing. Benefit, it's just so day... you can feel like this righteous person. Like, well, I told the truth, yeah, so like that. you can respect the fact that I was at Who least cares? honest with you. That's like Usher in the confession song. Like, you can respect the fact that I'm man enough to tell you this, and hopefully you'll give me another chance. It's like. No, she left your ass. That made no fucking sense. Exactly. It's no point. So anyway, last, how about last time you lied? Be honest about the time that you lied. I don't, I don't like the camera. I, I, who knows? I don't... Like, I, I can't... I really do try specific. to avoid lying because I've gotten to a point that is like... <laughs> don't you feel like, yo, I'm mad... Gr- like, I'm grown. Why am I lying? Especially if it's some dumb shit. Like, there's no point. I'm sure I have. Like, I'm not going to be like, oh, I'd never lie because everyone... Even me, I'd be like, I never lie, but I'm sure I'd make it like, it'd be like little stupid it's shit little, though. It's Sometimes little, it's little Sometimes it's like, yo, I just don't feel like going, I'm about to like do this, but then I just go to sleep or some or shit. Or it's like not <laughs> worth, it's just not worth the headache or the argument that you know is going to come with it because yeah, it wasn't that serious to begin with. I have no problem telling them when someone know. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. Know. All right. So the point of this episode is to discuss speech therapy. For those of you who don't know, I am a speech therapist. I am, I, wait. What the fuck am I trying to say? I need speech. I'm a speech therapist. I work in the Bronx. I work in an elementary school. And a lot of people don't know what speech therapy is. They don't really know what I do. A lot of people think I'm a teacher. I'm not a teacher. And so I never really wanted to talk too much about my career because I just felt like with the things that I talk about on this podcast, there might be... I don't know. It might be inappropriate or maybe it doesn't go together. I feel like there's a pressure when you have a career and you work with children and other professionals that you have to behave and act a certain way. And so I never wanted to combine the two things. But now I'm at a point where it's like I'm a real person. I'm passionate about what I do and I want to talk about it. And I want to I've realized in the years of me being a speech therapist, how many people have encountered speech therapy themselves, how many people know other people who have benefited from speech therapy. So it's worth having the conversation. And so I wanted to bring that to this platform. Um, I guess I can start with my background um, and how I got into this field to begin with, because a lot of people, like I said, they don't know about it unless they've actually experienced it themselves or they know someone who has. And then they don't really know what it is that we do. But no one, to my knowledge, wakes up and is like, I want to be a speech therapist. It's not like, you know, how you dream of being a doctor or an astronaut or a ballerina when you're younger. So I never thought I would do this, but I was always into reading. I was always into writing and grammar and correcting the way people spoke. And I was always like fascinated with the way people told stories. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> Don't say it. Okay, whatever. Um, I was always fascinated with the way people told stories and even the words that people use when they tell stories. Um, So I just figured I would be an English teacher. And then, I don't know, like seeing what my English teachers went through in high school, I was like, I do not want to be in front of a classroom dealing with these nasty ass kids with their nasty ass attitudes, with a whole like classroom just staring at me all day. The anxiety was going to kill me. So I was still trying to figure it out. 
And then my uncle, he's a speech therapist. So I spoke with him. And when I first told him, like, I want to be an English teacher or maybe major in English and literature, he was like, well, only lawyers really do that or people who want to write books or be in publishing. Do you want to do that? And I didn't. And he started telling me about what he did. And he's like, you know, I work with kids. I diagnose disorders. I give them therapy. I'll play games with them. And I try to teach them language. And I thought that was really cool. But I still was kind of like on the fence, not really sure. I just knew that he made good money. And I just wanted a career where it was like, okay, I'm going to get a job and I'm going to get good money. Because when you're in college, when I went to Lehman, most of the people were majoring in business. And now when I look back at those people, they're not doing anything with that degree or they're working in retail. They're not making a lot of money. And that's something that I, that was important for me. So I got went to Lehman and I started taking classes in speech therapy and I loved it. I started taking linguistics and phonetics and I was transcribing sounds and, and transcribing the way like doing language samples and language analysis and how we develop language. And I thought it was interesting. Like it clicked for me and it just stuck. So I got my uh, bachelor's degree from Lehman College. I got my minor in early childhood education. And then I got my master's degree at Hofstra University. And low key, like, honestly, I'm going to big up this field because it is not easy. People think we just sit down and play games with kids, but you have to go through such an extensive process of getting certified as a speech therapist. It's six years of school plus 500 Four to four seventy five to five hundred clinical hours, supervised clinical hours where they're putting you in schools, they're putting you in hospitals or rehab facilities. And you have people watching you all day long, like monitoring how you interact with people, monitoring your reports, editing your reports. I had to write reports like four or five times over. You have to explain things to people. And like if you explain it the wrong way, you have someone down your throat correcting you. It was a lot. It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of work. And um, even when you graduate and you get your first job, you're still under more supervision by a clinical supervisor before you can officially say, I am an SLP. I am a speech therapist. Um, So it's been a long road, but I'm happy. I'm happy I'm here. And I want to talk more about what it is that I do, but I don't want to just be talking to myself. So Anthony's going to be asking me some questions. Uh, First question I have to ask really quick. Yes. That conversation you had with your uncle. Yeah. um, Do you remember around what age you were? I was like 19. Okay. So you finished, you did high school and had no idea like what you wanted to do with your life kind of thing at this point. And so you started college already at this point at 19 years old mm-hmm. and you were just going through that motion, kind of just liberal arts, let's say. Right? Yeah, liberal, liberal <laughs> yeah. arts, you know, just kind of get your yeah, feet with wet. the idea that it was going to be English. Like I, I thought something in English. OK. Yeah. And then you had this conversation and then that just kind of set you on this path now and you got fully focused. Mm-hmm. Um, graduated from Lehman mm-hmm. um, and then. The process from going from Lehman to Hofstra to the, <laughs> your graduate school, graduate school, how was that process from being, um, you know, doing really well and then trying to get into grad school for you? So that's the thing. As much as people don't know much, like don't know about speech therapy, I feel like it is one of those like I, I don't know if I should call it a cult, but. It is very, very competitive to get into a grad school program. So even though I had straight A's in my major, straight A's in my minor, it didn't to me, I felt like it didn't matter because I was I applied to so many schools and I was getting rejection from rejected from all of them. And even the school that I graduated from Lehman, I got called for an interview because they interview you and did the interview. I still got rejected like it is very, very competitive. And I don't want to say what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. The field is, I don't feel like the field is uh, representative of a lot of people. I'm just going to say that. It's not culturally diverse. It's not culturally diverse. So a lot of programs are ran by, you know, certain group of people and they accept a certain amount of people who look like them. And that is the experience that has been shared among a lot of SLPs who are of color and who have experienced that. And I think that's what makes it even more difficult to get into a program. Luckily for me, I guess Hofstra, um, they were accepting students without interviews. So they just kind of pulled my application and I got in and I'm very grateful. When you did get accepted to Hofstra, your class, how many people were you within that, that 
I don't want fresh, not freshman class, but you I know, think like, there was like, only like fifty of us that got accepted into the program. And how many of those people were from a similar background to you? You would say define culturally. similar. Oh, culturally, I would say black or Hispanic. One. It was me and another girl. So only one other girl. Two out of fifty. Yeah. Were basically basically had some color. We were Hispanic. We were Latina. Yes. That's it. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. So that tells you about what you just mm-hmm. said. And I don't feel like that is an accurate representation because now working in the Bronx, I see how many other like Spanish people are in the field. And it's like, oh, so we're out here. It's just, I don't know. I don't know what it is. So that feeling that you had when you first or when you were in Hofstra going through that, um, did it make you feel like less of a little bit less of like a person like where you felt like damn maybe i'm not supposed to be doing this and then as opposed to when you got into the field and saw more people who look like you in your field you know what i mean actually no i never felt like i wasn't supposed to be doing it because i was good at it so i never like i i i always it always just clicked for me so like the classes were never hard for me and even when i was observing the graduate students um in my undergrad career or time it never looked, it was like, oh, I could do this. This is easy. I think the Im- intimidation came or just like isolation came when I was in the program and I was one out of the two who looked like we looked and were from where we from. And it's just like, damn, like I just felt more pressure to perform and I felt more pressure to kind of like hide parts of myself because I didn't want to be judged or looked at a certain way. So I felt like there was, there's even more pressure on you when you are a minority in a field where it's predominantly white and you feel like you have to really put that pressure and show out because they're already doubting you. They're already undermining you. They're already looking at you. Like you don't belong here. Like, what are you doing here? But it's like, bitch, we, I'm right here with you. I'm sitting in this same classroom right next to you. So I belong here. And I just always had to remind myself of that. Do you think it would have been important for, were you or a college student similar to you um, to have therapy at that time? To see a therapist yeah. while you were in college experiencing that? Yeah, absolutely. I was so anxious every single day. And it was, I felt like it put me more in my shell in the beginning. Like when I first started, I was already kind of like really close to my parents. So this was like my first time away from them, living on my own. And then- <clears throat> You add that with, okay, now I'm not really around people who look like me or act like me or talk like me. They don't listen to the music I listen to. So it just felt like I was just mad, just out of, I felt out of place and I stuck out. And yeah, I think I would have benefited because on top of that, the work is difficult. I'm exhausted. You have like some form of imposter syndrome when you're doing everything. Like, do I really know what I'm talking about? Do I really... You know, can I really do this? And then, yeah, a therapist would have been any type of medication would have been fantastic, too. But, yeah, definitely. And then just that feeling of completion when you finally graduated and, you know, I don't want to say survive, but you made it through that. Oh, I was ready. How did how was that feeling? That was like I will always remember graduation day as like the best day of my life because I did it. It's done. And now like I can just start the next phase of my life. I could start working and be that professional that I always wanted to be. Like to me, it was important for me to have that degree. And a lot of people don't really believe in like, oh, it's just a piece of paper. But it just for me was like this proves how hard I worked and how much I deserve this. And now I get to kind of like live a life with more freedom where I'm not fully, yeah, I have to report to a place to work, but there's still so much freedom in like having a career and, and setting your schedule and having money to do the things that you really want to do in life. And to me, like that was everything. Gotcha. Yeah. So would you say everything that you've gone through to that, up to that point is what inspired you to pursue your career in like a school setting? Like what helped okay. you start pursuing that? In so that with setting? the school setting, that's the thing. All right. So we're going to be really real, like me and kids, if you know me, like we're cool. Me and kids are cool, but we not tight. Like we're not there, there. (laughs) So like I never, ever thought that I would work with children. 
when I was in grad school and they put me in a rehab facility, they put me in a, it was an outpatient rehab. I knew for sure in that moment, like I'm going to work with adults. There's no way I'm going to be with children. Adults were fun. And like, I didn't have to be overly, um, like animated. I didn't have to like do all these crazy activities or lesson plans. It was like very straightforward therapy. And I like that. I'm a very straightforward person. So yeah, I thought I was gonna work with adults. The reason why I decided school is because again, you want to think of the quality of life, right? And when you're first graduating, you're still very new and very scared to like even work one-on-one with someone. So it's like, I wanted supervision. I wanted to work my first year at least to make sure like with someone who was going to be there with me if I had any questions. When you work in a hospital setting or in a rehab facility, it is very uncommon for a new SLP to have the proper supervision. They will leave you. And sometimes you're the only person in that building and there is no one watching you. And then you're working with with people who have like swallowing disorders And you are recommending diets to these people. If you recommend the wrong diet and something happens, it's on you because you're the one who made that call. I did not feel comfortable doing that without supervision. No. So I thought of that. I thought of the hours, right? Like when you work in the hospital setting or the medical setting, you're there on weekends, you're there on holidays, you're not getting out until six, seven o'clock. Who knows what time you're getting out? I wanted a set schedule. So the school gives you that. Like I work Monday through Friday. I'm off every weekend. I'm off every major holiday and I get paid summers off. Like you can't beat that. And I'm home every day before like three 30. I can still go to a doctor's appointment. I can still get my nails done or my hair done. I can still have a life outside of work. So I think that's what kind of really led me to the, the school setting. Yeah. Right. Gotcha. Just... <laughs> so, right. Why are you laughing? Because you know my kids thing. Kids are cool. Listen, now me and kids, we're we're cool. But like Do you have any kids in your life? Yeah, I have my nephew and my niece. But even him is like fist bump. Like <laughs> But the love is there. I'm just not that like crazy animated person. Like I don't know. All right. So explain the importance. Um, like what speech, speech language pathology encompasses in education and overall communication development. Okay. So in order to explain that, I think I really want to explain like the different level, the different parts of speech and language and communication. Those all are different things, but they're kind of related. And I think if by explaining it, you'll get a better idea of what it is that I do. So if you look at communication, communication is like the big umbrella, Right. And then you would have language right there with underneath and speech right underneath too. So they're all related, but they're a little different. So your communication is like your overall way of how you exchange your ideas and information with other people. And it encompasses the verbal parts of language and the nonverbal parts. So it's your eye contact, it's your body language, it's your ability to initiate or terminate a conversation, to even like be aware of your tone of voice, right? Like you want to communicate that you're happy, so you're not going to speak overly loud or overly aggressive. Um, And it's also being mindful of your articulation and the words you use. So it's all of that. Then you have language, and language are the actual rules that govern um, the rules and symbols that govern your specific language and your grammar and your vocabulary. So basically, obviously you're going to use correct grammar. You're going to use the proper words to convey what you want to convey. And you know what I find so interesting and like, I'm a nerd right now, but (laughs) this is why, like, this is so fascinating to me because even words have nuance and people don't, People who aren't in this field, they probably gloss over that. Like there's a reason why we use certain words and and you can pick up on those things. So there's a reason why someone would say they're furious instead of angry. They want to convey a specific emotion. And like, I don't know, I just find that fascinating. Um, And then you have speech. So speech is like this, the actual sounds that you use, your articulation. Um, And so all of those things are part of what we as speech therapists evaluate, treat, assess, all those things. What was the other part of the question? So it's, can you explain what speech language pathology encompasses and its importance in education and overall communication development? So we all have an innate ability to uh, develop language and to learn language from the time that we're born. 
That's something that we can do just by hearing the people around us speak. We can pick up on cadence. We can pick up on like when a word begins and ends and then when the new one's supposed to begin. And so even when babies, when they start vocalizing, they end up vocalizing in a way where it sounds similar to the language that's being spoken around them all the time. So sometimes there's interruptions in that ability to develop language. And the interruption can be from a variety of things. It could be so many parents don't even realize how important it is to just speak to your children constantly. Like everything you are doing, you should be narrating your actions to that child. You should be reading to that child because you are like the first, I guess the first point of contact when it comes to language. And so sometimes parents don't even do that. So their children end up with delays. By the time they get to school, they're not really talking. They don't have as much vocabulary. They don't know how to hold a book. They don't know the front part of a book. Um, they don't know their colors, their letters. So it could also be something like um, ear infections, right? And you may think, well, what do ear infections have to do with developing language? Well, if a child is constantly getting ear infections from the time they're like born until four or five, each sound vibrates at a certain frequency. So now, like, for example, the s sound is a high frequency sound. Yes, it is. It is. I so now if the ear infection is preventing them from perceiving that sound, they may not have that s sound in their inventory and they're not going to produce it. Mm -hmm. So that's something that now as speech therapists, we have to come in and we have to assess, okay, they're not doing that sound. Then we have to get a case history. Okay, well, tell me the medical history of this child. Oh, they had a lot of ear infections. Makes sense. Now we got to work on the sound. So that's where we come in. Like we have to literally analyze every part of communication when we meet a child or an adult. Mm -hmm. We have to look at the nonverbal cues, the verbal cues. So we're looking at the big umbrella. Then we're looking at the language. Do they have the vocabulary? Do they have the syntax or the grammar? Then it's okay. How is their articulation? You have to look at all of that plus the case history. And then from there, you're able to make an accurate diagnosis. Okay, this is what the issue is. This is how we're going to go in and fix it. Again, the other part of the question was how, how it relates to school. Uh, well, that's simple. I mean, that's literally how, I mean, I said everything, but yeah. now you have to match the curriculum on top of that. So it's like, whatever the teacher's doing, you have to be in close contact with the teacher and be like, okay, what are you doing in the classroom? Because now you have to figure out how you can support that student in the classroom. And when the student has a whole host of things going on, it is very challenging to like combine those two, but we do it. I'll just add on really quick. Yeah. So, cause I'm a hearing aid dispenser, so yes. I test hearing, and hearing aids. <laughs> but one thing that I've, because I've spoken to lots of people that wear hearing aids or have hearing loss in their adult life that have had it since childhood, and there's often times where they, um, they struggled learning early because they just couldn't hear. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, if the kid doesn't get treated and diagnosed like this, they'll have these learning disabilities because it's not because a lot of times they thought it was like they were retarded or dumb. Mm -hmm. It was like, they literally just don't hear and understand those type of sounds you mm -hmm. were describing. And that can affect them for the rest of their life. Cause if they don't learn it young and they just go keep going through school and the teachers just think, Oh, he has a learning disability. Mm -hmm. He's just whatever. It, it really affects them. And then they get a hearing test or something. It's like, Oh, this is what the problem is. They just can't hear mm -hmm. sit in the front of class, put on this hearing aid device. And now they can actually learn and catch up with the rest of the, the yeah. kids. Yeah. Like early intervention is so important. And I didn't get into that part of speech because mm -hmm. there are speech therapists who go to the homes and they work with zero to three. Um, and they, you know, they do that. And I think that that's amazing. I just didn't want to go into people's homes for the most part, but it is so important to catch it early on. And that's, you know, we're going to get into some of the challenges, but that is one of the challenges when you're dealing with parents who are in denial too, and they don't want to admit that their child may need some type of, you know, therapy. All right. So next question we have here. Yes. Excuse me. What are some common speech and language disorders you encounter in your work and how do you approach <laughs> their assessment and treatment? Girl. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin, honestly. For the record, she's not calling me girl. I'm not calling him girl, but just girl to whoever's listening. Because I literally, it's it's like, what don't I encounter, honestly? Sometimes I encounter things that aren't even part of my scope, and I just have to fucking deal with it. I I can't even say there's one thing that I get more, but um, I would say I get a lot. I get a lot of children with autism. 
Um, some of them are echolalic, which means that they just repeat things that they hear. They might repeat like YouTube, um, like welcome back to my YouTube channel. And they'll just repeat that. Or, um, today we're going to like, they'll just say something and they'll just keep saying it over and over again. Um, I get kids who are nonverbal, so they're hitting, they're screaming, they're uh, biting, they're punching, throwing themselves on the floor. And I will say like for the older grades, I've gotten a lot of children who honestly they can't read. And then for that, that's where dyslexia comes in. And that's a whole other thing. But I get a lot of children who are dyslexic and that is technically so you can't put dyslexia on an IEP. It's actually against the law. I'm not sure why. So a lot of these kids will get diagnosed as having a speech language impairment, but they're really dyslexic. So a reading specialist would really have to come in and work with those kids. I'm not a reading specialist. And I think that's the misconception that people are like, oh, well, you can do it. You can be the one to do the phonics program with him. And it's like, no, that's not what speech does. We are not reading specialists. We do not teach phonics programs. We do not develop phonics programs. So that's what I was going to ask. Do you often get... And within your um, business, like and within your school or like your place of work, do you often get, I miss, not mistaken, but like mistaken for like a secondary English teacher? Yeah, all the time. All the time. Or like just a backup to the teacher. And it's like, no, I want to make it very clear because it's like it pisses me off. I do not teach content. OK, that is what the teachers do. The teachers will teach certain like you know subjects they'll teach math they'll teach science and and reading and they teach you know about martin luther king and columbus day they'll do all that that is not my job they also implement the phonics programs in the classroom again that is not my job i give the student strategies so obviously like i said a lot of kids do have dyslexia on my caseload. Does that mean the wa- that I just leave them like that, though? No, of course not. I can't. But I would work on the underpinnings. So I would work on phonological awareness. Do they recognize the sounds of the letters? Do they know how to blend those sounds to make and read a word? Do they know how to separate those sounds? Um, and then it would be like, can they rhyme? Can they uh, do they know how to read syllables of words? Do they know how to combine syllables? So we can focus on that. Can I support with a phonics program if they're doing it in the class? Yes. What lesson are you doing? Oh, you're teaching them about compound words. OK, maybe I can give them some repeated practice of compound words in my office. But am I going to take that phonics program and just say, OK, today we're going to do lesson one because you did lesson one in the class? No, I'm not reiterating a phonics program. And so that'll be the problem, too, with like administration and other teachers that they'll be like, Oh, well, what phonics program are you using? None, because that's not my job. That's not what I do. So I think that's the most of my caseload. A lot of children who don't know how to read. And it is honestly a serious problem in the city with children not knowing how to read. It's just like mind boggling. Gotcha. And then you're not the person to resolve that issue. No, exactly. We can try though. We'll try. (laughs) All right. So this next question has a little switch it up. Right. And it's about technology Mm -hmm. right? and the innovation. So obviously modern technology has advanced um, the way everyone is treated nowadays. Right. Mm -hmm. So what do you how can you describe the role of technology and innovation like different tools and speech therapy today? And how do they advance um, the experience f- with you and your your students or your patients, whatever you will call it? So I would say I never actually thought of technology being such an important part of um, speech therapy when I first started working. Just simply because, you know, speech therapy is so hands on and it's just it's talking. So it's like I don't really need that. But couple of things. I didn't realize the importance of it until 2020 when everything got shut down. And then I had to do teletherapy. So I was providing therapy online. Technology was all we used. I needed that. You know, I needed to learn how to get on Google Meets and share my screen. And I was creating um, learn like Boom Decks or, there, you know, Boom Learning as a website that has a whole bunch of therapy resources and teacher resources that you that you can assign to students and they can get the information and get the practice that they need. So I was using that. I was creating my own boom decks. And so it was such a huge part. 
And children love technology. Like, you know, today's day and age, like everyone has a phone. Kids are having tablets by the time they're three years old. So children just are more engaged in therapy when you bring out the laptop or you bring out the the tablet and they want to now they want to engage. Now they want to read and answer questions because they get to touch the screen. And so it's a good way to get them engaged. Um, it's also been amazing for kids who, again, can't read. And now they get to have the text read to them when they have their laptops in class or their tablets in class or at home. They have text read to them. They can't spell the best. They probably don't write the fastest. A lot of my kids get occupational therapy because their hand grip is a little weak. So it's good for those students who can't write as quickly and they're able to do the text to speech. So it's become something that's been really helpful. I have a question. I don't know if you may be the best person to answer this, but mm-hmm. because you're still young and have not been doing it for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that there has been negative, um, like the technology has been negative, like how kids are always glued to their phones? Of course, tablets. I can answer this. Are you crazy? No, but no, because <laughs> I wanted to see if it's been like, from like the nineties, early two thousands, where the changes now kids like always have their phone with them. Does that affect their speech development in a negative way? I think it's affected their attention span more than anything. Mm. I feel like I'm getting more kids coming in who are just for lack of a better phrase, they're just all over the place. They cannot sit still. They cannot maintain eye contact. They can't keep their hands to themselves. Like you, they need to constantly be touching something. And the constant stimulation is out of this world. I have to get like sensory bins with all different types of things just to keep their hands busy. So they will stay in their seat. So I think that's been um, a thing. I also feel like it's also affected their ability to just engage with each other regularly, you know, just the eye contacts and just the sharing and the talking to another kid and everyone. They're so like isolated, even in the group, like they'll just be to themselves. And it's just like them looking at the table like they don't know how to they're awkward. Even from a young age, you can see that awkwardness there. And I think therapy has been a good way to even just bring kids together and have them like engage in a relaxed environment outside of the classroom. What other what other like common challenges are there when when working with um, kids, especially in the Bronx who (laughs) come from our backgrounds? So um, how do you address them? Yeah, I feel like we're. Where you work really plays a role in your experience in that school, because if you were to work, for example, in like White Plains or Scarsdale, you would have parents who are way more involved in their child's education and they are on it. Like they want to to talk to you all the time. They want to know what their child is doing. And to be honest, the kids are a little more advanced. The kids are reading. They're at least at grade level. You may have some comprehension of vocabulary, you know, kids that you need to work with, maybe some minor articulation. But for the most part, the work isn't as um, and it may it, it depends on what you like. Right. Because some people love that. They love that the parents are involved and some people don't because the parents can be very intense um, where I work when you work in where like from, you know, the Bronx and like is low socioeconomic. A lot of the parents are illiterate themselves. They don't speak English. They don't really know what's going on. So they kind of just trust the teachers. They trust the therapists. And, you know, it's good that we're all on top of what we do. But if we could literally be telling them anything and they would believe us. And that's, I think, the part that could be just a little. They're just not as involved. They don't show up. They miss the emails. They don't they're not really good with technology. Some of them don't have the technology at home. So they're out of the loop. So their kids aren't really getting that reinforcement at home. Um And they're not really when they were with their kids before school, they weren't giving them they weren't understanding the importance of language. I think it's the lack of education from the parents and the lack of involvement. And some parents are just they don't even care, honestly, like they just drop them off. They're not involved. They're not doing homework. They're not home until nine, 10 o'clock at night. I mean, I have had students tell me like, oh, I was with my mother doing Uber until 2 a.m. last night and they're falling asleep at my therapy table. And it's like. Why? Like it was a school night. Why were you doing that? And that's it just is what it is. And, you know, the parents, there's parents, you know, abusing their kids. They're smoking weed in front of their kids and like their kids are coming to school and they have they're going through a lot at home. And then we have to kind of be the ones who pick up the pieces during the school day. 
They're not living a, a quote unquote normal. No, they're kid not life. by any means, and that's something that we also have to take into account. So for me, I feel like in therapy, I just really try to focus on just establishing a good, like, safe, fun environment with them before anything, getting them to trust me, and just like it's not going to be a strict like learning environment right away because we need to build that that relationship first and it's about making them comfortable so that's the strategy or technique you use to engage them like making them feel comfortable like at first like especially when it's a new student i'm not rushing to like tackle their goals like no like let's get to know each other let's do some let's do some fun activities let's play some games let me get you acquainted to the other kids you're going to be working with let's build that you have to build that relationship first you have to do you have like a go-to um, like technique that to use to just make it enjoyable, like a game or just something that's your go-to? Like, you know what? <laughs> I tried this. This is not going to work, but this, I know this is going to work for me. You know what? Kids are simple. I feel like when you're just nice to them and you just kind of let them, that's the thing. You can let them run the show and still have structure mm-hmm. and still kind of let them know, okay, but I'm the teacher here. <laughs> and I feel like, especially with the young kids. Therapist, not teacher. Sorry. Yes, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> and I hate when people do that to me. Um, but even as like a, even with the young kids, like I have, I've had, oh man, it's been a rough, it's been a rough month with kids, you know, hitting and screaming and biting. And I had a kid punch me in the chest twice. And that same kid, it's like, okay, he doesn't want to do anything that you want to do. Like, God forbid you take out a book. He is losing it. He doesn't even want to look at the book, but it's like, okay. I'm going to make this child feel like they have control over this session. So I'm going to give him a choice of two things that I want him to do regardless, but I'm going to let him pick out of these two things. Cool. He picked one thing. Now it's just about letting him flow in that activity. Pick like do like whatever, build whatever blocks you want to build, make it as high as you want to make it. And now I'm just going to give you the language. I might withhold some stuff. So you have to ask me. So we're working on requesting. I may say, okay, put the green one on top of the blue one. Now you're following directions. So I'm giving you the therapy, but you and you as a child, you think you're running the show and you're just playing with Legos. So I think that's just really what I do. I let them pick what they want to do and then you can embed language into anything. So it works out that way. Sounds like you have a pretty good grasp um, on how to conduct these therapy sessions. Yeah. And how long have you been um, doing? How long have you been in your current role? So it's been, <coughs> this is my fifth year officially, like with no supervision. But honestly, I count the years that I was in grad school. So I'm going to say seven years of experience. So I have a question. When you were in grad school, right? We're going to just take it back for real quick. Yeah. You were in grad school. Do you remember like your first patient, like that interaction with that person? Mm -hmm. And how was that for you? Just like interacting with them and giving them treatment, going through that process, seeing Mm -hmm. them repeatedly compared to where you are now, the Mm -hmm. confidence that you have and everything. Now, what was that at first when you first met that person, that Mm -hmm. first session, like here it is, like I'm here. I was so nervous. It was, I I don't want to say his name because I can't, but it was an older gentleman. He was like in his late sixties and he had gotten, um, he had a stroke. So he had aphasia. So aphasia is when, I mean, there's different types of aphasia. We don't have to get nerdy, but basically it was affecting the way he was comprehending and putting out his language, his verbal output. And he also had apraxia. So like the coordination of his muscles, he wasn't able to really say the exact words he wanted to say. And also with aphasia, like you say pen, 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 but he was probably really asking for water, but he couldn't say water. So pen just kept coming out. So that's extremely frustrating. And I remember just being like, I don't know what to do with this man, but you know, and that's where technology came in because he had something called the Langrafica. It's like a, um, like a assisted technology to speak. Mm-hmm. So it's like a communication board. It has all his basic needs. He's able to show a picture and it requests things for him. So honestly, it was just about working on that. We were reading stories together. I found out like, um, famous like baseball players that he liked. I found stories about that. We answered questions. It was great. Like we, we had such a good time together, even though he could barely communicate with me, but he was laughing. He was showing me pictures of his family. I would play music. He would dance. He was able to sing along to the music because he remembers the uh, repetition of the songs. So honestly, it was great and it flowed. And that's when I knew I was like, I can do this. Like, this is so natural to me. 
do you think that now five years five years later, you know, at, in your prison, do you think there are techniques that you have learned these, in these five years that mm-hmm. maybe you could have applied then and made it even a better experience? Um, I think I could have maybe challenged him more. I think I was afraid to challenge him because I didn't want him to get frustrated. But I've realized like sometimes the breakthrough is in the challenges when you kind of force your students or your patients to like go there. Do you feel like you were too insecure that you couldn't challenge him because you didn't feel secure enough about yourself? Probably. And I also just again, I just didn't want him to flip out on me. Like when you're young, you got a 60 year old going off on you. Like I didn't want that. I didn't want to make anything any harder than it needed to be for him. But I feel like now I probably would have. And I think I would have even like forced him to like, I probably would have had his wife come up to some of the sessions and like engage with him. So he could practice like engaging with her and like just making it more applicable to his regular life. So, yeah. Okay. (laughs) All right. So now we covered all of that. Right now let's see. What advice would you give to someone who's aspiring to be a speech SLP? Let's say SLP. SLP. Right. Uh Um, And that want to work that want to make a difference in a similar setting, you know, that you're in? I would say, because we all want, like, if you go into this field, you want to make a difference. And I think you think that you're going to get out of, like, grad school and you're going to hit the ground running and you're going to save all these lives. And it's like, the reality is you're not. The reality is that you may work with someone for years and they may never have progress. You may work with a kid and he'll have progress the first session. And then the second session, he comes back and he forgets everything. And it just, it's disheartening. And even the lack of respect that you may get from your colleagues is also disheartening. So just, just, I would just say, be realistic. You're not going to save as many lives as you want to. But I think the most important thing is just your attitude about it. Like for me, I don't even focus on like, like, yes, you want everybody to make progress. And you want to know you're making a difference. But I think the true difference is just you being that person that they can lean on, that they respect, that they feel comfortable with. I think that's the most thing. And it's really just one person at a time. Like, I think that's the main thing you should focus on because you have the knowledge. Like, there's no way you're going to graduate from grad school and not have the knowledge. And you're always going to have the resources. But that relationship that you build with that person is the most important thing. All right. Are there like any emerging trends or advancements that you're most looking forward to, most excited about that you've seen maybe possibly coming up? I think the most, um, uh, I don't know, technology is still advancing. Um, the most interesting thing that I would like them to develop is like, and I don't know if this is even possible in the world of speech, but there's so many resources out there and there's so many aspects of language that you can target in different ways. I would like someone to create some type of curriculum or some type of like big book of like activities or something that we could refer back to where we're all as speech therapists on the same page. Because like the beauty of speech therapy is that I could be working with an artic client, articulation client and be doing one thing. And the speech therapist over there could be doing something completely different and we can learn from each other. But it would be nice if we could just encompass all of that into like a big file or something and like just have it to refer back to. That's what I would love to see in the future, honestly. So like a quote unquote like encyclopedia of speech. Yeah, like they have some, but I would just something that's even practical where you could just like grab and go. Like just a whole bunch of therapy materials that you could grab and go that are tactile, that people can manipulate and really like make it super functional. I feel like that would be like amazing. Is it still like a young field? Like where it's still being like kind of developed where like organizationally, like there's not... Cause obviously, um, it's, it's not, you're not a nurse, no. you're not like a physical therapist, no. you know, there's certain things, but mm-hmm. like, it's, it's a little niche that's over here. Kind of yeah, like, because you know what, like physical therapy is like, these are the muscles. This is how the body works. That's it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, but with speech, as much as speech is like a science and there's so much research and data on, on certain things at the same time, it's also a very like creative and artsy field because there's so many ways to express yourself and there's so many dialects. And then even with the dialects, you can't judge a child if like they, you know how we say, um, oh, I'd be going there all the time. 
Like even that, that's not considered a speech disorder. It's just a language difference. So it's like, there's so many, like I said, there's so much nuance to language that you can be so creative and it's so vast and people, yes, are still developing it. Back in the day, like when speech therapists were like in the sixties, when they were in schools, all they worked on was articulation and stuttering. That's it. They didn't even do vocabulary and comprehension and dyslexia and all that other stuff. So yeah, it's still developing, but I mean, I like how much you can do and I like the changes that are coming and I still keep up to date with the research because we have to. Gotcha. Okay. And then lastly, um, what, like what kind of qualities or skills do you think is necessary to be a successful or a very good (laughs) SLP? You need to pick up, you need to read the room. Like you need to read the room, (laughs) pragmatic cues. Like you need to know when something is not working in that session and be able to get creative and change it on the fly. Like there is no, I'm going to run it out and we're just going to, no. I think that is the most important quality to have as a speech therapist. Recognize when what you're doing is not working and you are able to get creative and shift and pivot in that moment and try something else. Do not be afraid to try something else. You know how many sessions of mine failed, especially my first year or two? I failed so many times. Sessions were a disaster. Like I used to want to cry from how frustrated I was, but you can't get frustrated. It doesn't work. Move on. Try something else. What worked for one kid is not going to work for the next. And it's okay. Just move on. I'm going to add on to that because our fields are similar. Yeah. One, like one thing I think all um, like therapists or someone who works like in a one-on-one environment, Mm -hmm. giving someone some type of therapy. Yeah. Patience. Patience. Patience and support of empathy. (sighs) This person is coming to you and it's probably took them a lot to get to you. Like they probably had internal struggles with themselves Mm -hmm. and they're sitting in your office and are relying on you to give them the most accurate information. So be patient with them and know that they're going to get frustrated. They're going to be confused. Um, They may be scared, anxious, all of those things. Mm -hmm. So just have that patience and just, just wait and give them good information. Never try to oversell them any information either. You're not Einstein out here. You know what I mean? Just give them the best information that you can give them the best treatment. And keep it simple and keep it simple. You don't need to go crazy with all the technical terms, make it easily digestible for them so that they feel comfortable when they leave your session. Like, okay, I feel better about my disorder or what I have. Mm -hmm. So patience and some empathy and understanding. Yes, absolutely. And be creative. <laughs> and that's it i feel like with that people got a good grasp right did i leave anything out i feel like no i think you did a very good job explaining thank you what it is thanks oh so now i guess i can plug in my new podcast that i'm gonna be releasing it is gonna be it is called the chill slp there's no release date soon but i just recorded two episodes so i'm just gonna talk a little bit about that real quick if you don't mind um (laughs) real quick though before we gotta go um so i'm just gonna this podcast is really for it's for everybody but it's for people who really just are working or have family members who have speech language communication disorders and they are able to just come to my podcast and get the information quick fast in a hurry i'm not gonna bore you with a whole bunch of things the episodes will be no more than 20 minutes i'm gonna give you resource links in that every episode description you're gonna have research articles so if you want to read up on the research yourself you can do that um links to activities that you can purchase and try at home this is for people who just want the information and and they feel like they're not really getting it from other places like this is a place for you to get it from someone who looks like me okay Spanish speaking from the Bronx, work in the Bronx, like, you know, it's going to be very relatable to people who are in that world. And yeah, so I hope you tune in and I feel like we're done here. Yeah. All right. Thank you guys for watching. Like, comment, subscribe, and we will see you next week. Hopefully. Okay. Bye. All right, we're done.